Well, we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We're coming towards the end of the second of five major speeches by Jesus. And this one has to do with mission. So over the past few weeks, we've been learning about the disciples as they went on a missionary journey to Israel, not to the Gentiles in this first instance, but to Israel. But as we've been going through and listening to chapter 10, we have learned that Jesus' words rather intentionally spill over to us who are Gentiles contemplating sharing our faith not only with Jews, which we are still strongly encouraged to do, but also to Gentiles in keeping with the Great Commission, which comes at the end of chapter 28, when Jesus commissions his disciples and us through them. I have to tell you that when we look at the words today, they are a challenge. Maybe you were struck as uh, it was being read that Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And if you love your mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. My friends, the stakes here are high. There's no question about it. You know, that runs counterculture to us because uh, we live in a world where um, we don't like the choice of all or nothing. And here Jesus says, in effect, you have to be all in where I'm concerned or else you're not worthy of me. Are you all in or not? Wow. Um, we like to diversify. Uh, we like to go out and uh, choose this and that. When we dine, we like buffets. We like diversified portfolios. We like to be inclusive. A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And along comes this man and says, basically, it's me or nothing. So as I thought about this sermon this week, it occurred to me that it was really time to suggest that Jesus is inviting us to a point of decision. He's saying it's either time to fish or to cut bait. Well, that's a hard decision to make, but let's step back and think about things for a moment. And when you think about it, when you come to ask the bigger questions in life that Jesus is addressing here, it kind of is a matter of all or nothing. I mean, either life has meaning or it doesn't. And Jesus is saying, in effect, that he is the source of meaning and that if you want to find meaning and purpose in life, you need to look no further than him. But are the alternatives really that stark? Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher and logician, wrote this on reality from the perspective of science. He said, even more purposeless, more void of meaning, is the world which science presents for our belief. And here's what he says we have to believe. That man, his origin, his growth, his fears, his loves and beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms. These things, if not quite beyond dispute, 
That is that we are a mere collection of the accidental collocation of atoms. These things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which, which rejects them can hope to stand. And he suggests that only within the scaffolding of these truths, on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Well, for those of you who know a little bit about philosophy, and I only know a little bit, and that's enough to be dangerous, it's been a long time since Russell. But jump ahead to Steven Weinberg and his Nobel Prize winning work. He won the Nobel Prize for physics in 1979, and he wrote a book called The First Three Minutes, which talked about the Big Bang and the first three minutes of the beginning of the universe. And he says this in his book, he says, the more comprehensible the universe becomes, the more pointless it also seems to be. So the stakes are high. Now, I admit that it's possible to find meaning in life in the, uh, in the ordinary and in the everyday. But when push comes to shove, when it comes to those big questions, I mean, we've all been plagued by this. Are we nothing worse or nothing more than simply the accidental collocation of atoms? It was a theologian I like who compared Thanksgiving, for example, where you give thanks to no one if you don't believe. He said, Thanksgiving without God is kind of like thanking your microwave for your omelet. You know, I mean, it, it made it, but it, 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 it doesn't exist. It, it's just kind of there and does it. So when you think about the alternatives and what science has told us, what you'd expect is that if there was meaning to life, that somebody would come and Show us the way, which is, like, which is exactly what Jesus said he did. He is God incarnate. He is God who came into human flesh and who claimed to be nothing less than God. So in a way, when we read this passage, um, we think it's, it's, it's just amazing. I mean, you read the passage and you think, who does this guy think he is, God? Yes, that's exactly it. And so it's not surprising that in this passage, we come to someone who says, in effect, it's time to fish or cut bait. And I came as a fisher of men, and I hope that you will be drawn by my line and brought to myself so that I can give you life and give you life eternal. So I invite you to look at this passage with me, and as we do, let us look at the harsh realities of what Jesus is saying. And I've summarized the passage a little bit differently than it is in the ESV, and you can find it on page one of your handout, this handout that's called The All-Important Jesus. Jesus first says that we must profess the all-important Jesus. We must profess the all-important Jesus. Now, in the preceding context, if you might remember, it was a context of persecution that we dealt with last week. And Jesus was talking about how we would be handed over to people and we would be arrested and we would be flogged and we would be beaten. And we actually heard from a friend from Iran who became a Christian, uh, went through that experience and he shared that with us. And the parting words at the end of the last section 
were Jesus's reminder that God cares for us and knows the very hairs on our head. So that's why this word therefore in verse 32 is important. Jesus says, everyone therefore who will attest to me before men, I shall also attest to him before my Father who is in the heavens. But whoever might deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in the heavens. So it's continuing on the theme of persecution, although it could also apply to telling your parents uh, if they weren't Christians and knowing that you might be abandoned by your family, I am going to profess faith in Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. Jesus here gives us a clue about his self-understanding. He is a mediator between God and man. And in the context, it's, it's I think, um, it goes like this, and I found it helpful to kind of think of a sort of a diagram. Uh, think of me here and people uh, maybe at a table like a tribunal. And Jesus is saying, if I bear witness to Jesus and say, I am with Jesus, and you confess that before the human tribunal who might actually kill you, Jesus says, if you do that, then I... When I come before my Father, who is God the Judge, I will attest to you and say, this person is with me. So in this very enunciation, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. So if we say before a tribunal, uh, say we get arrested, and they say, uh, are you a follower of Jesus? Uh, and if you say that uh, Jesus is a schmuck and worthless, you're free to go. But if you confess Jesus as your Lord, well, you're going to be in deep trouble. Jesus says at that point, we need to profess him. And if we do that, he will tell God, the judge, that we are on his side. And on the other hand, and I've worded things a little bit differently in verse 33, because the verb tenses change. And it's almost as though Jesus doesn't even want to think about this. He says, but whoever might deny me before men, God forbid, I will deny him before my Father who is in the heavens. So there's a kind of a relationship between us and Jesus and Jesus in God. And you can see that at the beginning of our pericope here. Therefore, he who will attest to me before men, I shall also attest to him before my Father who is in the heavens. And then at the end, in the hosting section in verse 40, Jesus invokes the same dynamic. The one receiving you receives me, and the one receiving me receives the one who sent me. Scholars of the Bible have a group called the Historical Jesus Seminar. And this is a group of... Um, um, very careful, rigid thinking uh, scholars who will not extend the benefit of the doubt uh, and who ask what we can be sure that Jesus said. And anything that somebody else could have said and put in Jesus's mouth, they don't allow. And so their bottom line is that uh, they can be sure, they're the most sure of two things, that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist because no one in the church would invent that. I mean, if that didn't happen, there's no reason for anybody to make it up. And Jesus was also crucified uh, because that was an embarrassment. I mean, you're, you, you know, your Messiah gets crucified. That's, that's not good PR. That's, that's very bad. 
because only uh, criminals get crucified. Well, I don't know what criteria you use. Well, I do know what criteria the, the, uh, the Jesus Seminar uses, but I think one of the criteria that should also be used is how common Jesus repeats a theme. And I think if there's one thing that's clear, it's this, that Jesus understood himself to be speaking on behalf of God. I mean, he said, I'm doing what the Father tells me to tell you to do, or I say to you what the Father says to me to tell you to do. I do what the Father tells me to do. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And when challenged, Jesus would say something like when they said, what, you think you're older than Abraham? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Well, any lunatic can be uh, argue that they can be sent from God, right? I mean, when I was at, when I was at Yale, there was a, a, a fellow on the street who was kind of um, a, a lively character, and he claimed to be Jesus. And he would come along to you and he'd say, I am the Messiah. And you'd say, oh, really? And he'd say, yes. And you'd say, well, how do you, how, why do you think you're the Messiah? He said, well, no one had ever heard of Jesus when Jesus uh, was teaching. No one's ever heard of me. Uh, Jesus was uh, 33 years old when he died, and I just turned 33 a couple of weeks ago. And that was about as far as he took it, right? So it's possible for somebody to claim to be sent from God. But what do you do with somebody who says that they come from God and people recognize his authority to the extent where he actually has to hide it? Jesus adopts terms like the son of man, just to kind of to not draw attention to who he is because he doesn't want his fame to get ahead of himself. And we read a few weeks ago in chapter eight, verses one to four, where Jesus ran into a man who was immobile. He had a spinal cord injury or something. And Jesus said, I forgive your sins. Well, the religious leaders immediately knew that was blasphemy. And they said, who is this man to say such a thing? Only God forgives sins. And Jesus didn't back away from it for a minute. He said, okay, well, you can't see me forgive sins, but you can see me do this. And he told the man, who had a spinal cord injury or something, get up and walk. And the man got up and walked. He raised the dead, and he even was raised himself after he died. My friends, it's time to cut or fish bait. This is someone who uh, to believe in makes all of the difference in the world. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we go on and we learn of three other instances in which Jesus demands that we treat him as the all-important figure that he is. And he actually says something pretty counter-political in the beginning of the choosing section in verse 34. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill towards man. He says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I want to explain that in a minute because it sounds rather jihadist and, and brutal. Um, but the point is this, Jesus is, did come to bring peace on earth, but it's, it's a little bit like this. If you bring peace on earth and you do it in a, in a decisive way, you're also causing a lot of damage in the non-peace department, right? So Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, the word sword uh, usually connotes something violent for us, but I want you to notice how he continues in verse 35. For I came to divide a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The enemies of a man will be members of his own household. 
So he's talking about a sword in terms of the sword not being something that you kill people with, but something that when you, you draw it down, it splits things in two. And in Luke's gospel, instead of talking about a sword, Jesus uses the word division and also fire, which implies final judgment. So Jesus is saying, yeah, it's important to follow me. And if you have to choose between your own family members and me, it should be me. This includes even things that are good to do. And this is going to touch base with us in a minute, friends. Because all of us, I think, would sort of say, well, if I have to choose between doing something self-destructive and following Jesus, um, okay, I can do that. But this even includes good things. There was a man who came to Jesus earlier on in chapter uh, 4, verses 18 to 22, who said, um, I just need to go and bury my father, you know, familial duty, it's important in our culture. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead, come and follow me. So we have to give up the good things that we might be inclined to do. That might be going to some kind of a preppy law school and uh, doing something that uh, people in, in, in your culture would really admire. Jesus is saying here that we need to lay it all on the line. Even to the point of losing family members. And I spoke last week of a friend who uh, was uh, his first cousin back in Iran. Uh, is now one of his enemies and reported on him and some uh, people who come from islam or judaism have had their parents disown them for the sake of following jesus and as hard as that is jesus is here saying to them you made the right move because i am the way and the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me jesus is the real deal the total deal and it's time to fish or cut bait. When Jesus moves to the third section, and which I have called loving the all-important Jesus, the connection between that and the second is family members. But Jesus moves on to the motive why you would leave someone, the motive why you would leave mother or father. It has to do with your love for Jesus. This is, after all, the one who began the passage by reminding us that he knows the very hairs on our head. For some of us, that's an easier count than others. But Jesus knows the most intimate details of our life. And here he said, the one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And then I think verses 38 and 39 are there to tell us what love means in the Bible. And so Jesus uses different language than the words love. And he says, the one who does not carry his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What if you ever thought about the implications of saying you're a follower of Jesus? <laughs> Things did not turn out very rosy for him, did they? He was tortured. He was crucified. So if you sign up in this all or nothing deal, Jesus is in effect saying, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. But you might get yourself killed in the meantime. There are more important things than life. There's life eternal. So this involves carrying one's cross and following Jesus. A commentator in Luke's gospel said of the statement relating to the one who tries to find his life will lose it and the one who will lose his life on my account will find it, said, 
those who give the highest priority to the task of protecting themselves will find that there's nothing left to protect. A man who spends his young adulthood in a continuing effort to find himself, indulging his appetites and whims and refusing to be locked into any commitments, may discover only too late what he has lost. Conversely, the person who surrenders freedom by acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord will find herself or himself. The lie of our culture is that you need to find the truth that lies within yourself and you will be free. The unorthodox Unity Church in Spokane posted an advertisement back in 1980 that promoted this heresy. Uh, its author, Robert Browning, is said to have said, set yourself free. Truth is within yourselves. It takes no rise from outward things. Whatever you may believe, there's an inmost center in us all where truth abides in fullness. And to know rather than, and to know rather consists in opening out a way whence the imprisoned splendor may escape, that in effecting entry for a light supposed to be without. I don't know about you, but you look inside yourself, it's pretty empty. I was at one point in my life on my way to go and find myself by going on a trip. And I went into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and there I was. I saved myself a lot of money. But the picture wasn't all that pretty either. I sort of thought there's no real redemption in the self. And here's the irony of Christianity, that the more one loses one's life for Jesus' sake, the more one finds one true self. Because our hearts were made for God and our hearts are restless until they find themselves in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Well, we're coming to the end of the missionary chapter, so it ought not to surprise us that Jesus ends chapter 10 by talking about hosting the all-important Jesus. And here's a wonderful reminder of the importance of hospitality, and again, Jesus emphasizes our relationship needs to be with him because he is in relation to God. The one receiving you, he says in verse 40, receives me. The one receiving me receives the one who sent me. The one who sent me. There comes up that theme again that comes over and over again, particularly in John's gospel. But we see it here in Matthew's gospel. And we're soon coming to a part in Matthew's gospel that you'd swear came from John for that very truth and that very principle. And then Jesus here offers in testimony to his own importance and the value of following Jesus. He said, anyone who receives a prophet, this would be a traveling preacher, somebody like that, in the name of a prophet will receive the reward of a prophet. And the one who receives a righteous one in the name of a righteous one will receive the reward of a righteous one. And the one who gives to one of these little ones merely a cold drink in the name of a disciple, I truly tell you, will in no way lose his reward. You see, that's one of the nice things about following Jesus. I mean, it's an all or nothing deal, but when you're all in, you experience this person who is incredibly loving and who is generous and who uh, is the opposite of, um, you know, somebody like, uh, well, Donald Trump, who in the course of the January 6th hearings, many people have 
uh, testified to the fact that when they were going to give testimony, they would receive a note from Trump or one of Trump's agents saying, I love you, bud. And uh, the idea was that um, I say I love you, and I'm hoping that you will testify um, not against me because I love you. But I don't put a lot of stock in Donald Trump for me, but I do put a lot of stock in Jesus's love for me because he died for me. And he knows the very hairs on our head. You may have noticed I wasn't going to use that illustration. I got a little sidelined. Anyway, there we go. Jesus is saying that if we receive a traveling preacher for being a traveling preacher and not for being somebody important, we have the reward of a traveling preacher. So when I was studying this passage, I was kind of wishing that Billy Graham were still alive because I, I think that Billy Graham's reward in heaven is going to be quite great for um, having brought so many people to Christ. You mean if I gave him a drink of water, my reward would be the same as Billy Graham's going to get? Well, uh, that may be pushing it a little bit, but the point is the same. Jesus says that if you receive a preacher, just for being a preacher, you will receive the reward of a preacher. If you receive a righteous person, for being a righteous person, you receive the reward of that righteous person. And then he brings it right down to the level so that there's no economic kind of tiering here. You don't have to be wealthy to offer hospitality. He says the one who gives to one of these little ones, uh, the word drink isn't actually there in the original, it, it's a cold cupper. I think that's, uh, that's maybe a British phrase. Would you like a cold cupper? It's, it's a cold cup in the name of a disciple. I, true you, I truly tell you, will in no way lose his reward. So we're brought back to the missionary theme, which is all important. And we're told that whatever we do to promote uh, missions is, uh, is vital. One person wrote, the ordinary Christian who can do more for Christian mission than be hospitable to its workers will be encouraged to know that this hospitality is fully equivalent in God's eyes to being one of those workers oneself. That same person, Bruner, continues and says, the Christian world mission is God's major enterprise in history. And all who work to advance it, directly or indirectly, with sermons or with cups of water, with home visitations or financial assistance, are in line for substantial rewards. Not a single disciple is left out of the mission some do it, others support it. All receive the same great reward, divine appreciation at the judgment. Let me conclude by suggesting a way in which we might give ourselves a test of whether we are all in or not. And as I did this, I felt myself convicted and um, I suspect that you will as well. We all ask that God would show us his will. You know, show me what you'd like me to do, God. And we hope and pray that God does that. But when we ask for that, are we saying that if God shows us what his will is, that we will do that? I think often it's kind of, show me what you'd like me to do so I can decide, well, am I going to do my thing or am I going to do your thing? And I think that we can be kind of assured that we're all in. 
and that our faith in Jesus is, is truly trusting, if we can say, Lord, if you show me your will, that's it. You make it clear, I'm in. And that takes a degree of selflessness. That takes a degree of the losing of one's life that Jesus is talking about in this passage. Andrew Murray put it this way in With Christ in the School of Prayer. He said, if you're looking for God's will, I suggest you do this. Number one, weigh everything well. Weigh all in the light of the Holy Scriptures and the fear of God. Two, seek to have no will of your own in order to ascertain the mind of God regarding any steps you propose taking so that you can honestly say you are willing to do the will of God if he will only please to instruct you. But when you have found out what the will of God is, ask for his help and seek it earnestly, perseveringly, patiently, believingly, expectingly, and you will surely in his own time and way obtain it. He who seeks to find his life will lose it. But the one who loses it for my sake, says Jesus, will find it. God grant us the strength and the courage and the faith to say to him, Lord, with your help, I'm all in. Amen.